I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lafayette, we are here. The French history podcast for the American public by a Frenchman. Learn all about France's fascinating history. Its great characters like Charlemagne, Joan of Arc, Louis XIV, or Napoleon but also the great events that marked France, Europe, and sometimes the whole world. Lafayette, we're here. Available wherever you get your podcast, or on lafayettepodcast.com. A bientôt. Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is... Edward, the Black Prince part one. This week, I'm going to give all the spoilers, but it's history, and we should already know most of them. You may think you've missed the first part a few times, but bear with me. To make a narrative of the Black Prince's life, I need to get a lot of smaller points out of the way first. Edward the Black Prince, oldest son of Edward III of England, died on the 8th of June, 1376. His death would put an end, at least temporarily, to his father's ambitions in France. While many Plantagenets would see half of France as their birthright, a king, in this case Richard of Bordeaux, in his minority is not the best option to lead an invading army. Edward III's dream was paused when his grandson, Richard II, and not his eldest son, the Black Prince, succeeded him. The elderly king, dying a year later and leaving a minority in place, leading to the loss of continental gains, will be seen again in just 45 years with the early death of Henry V. That story will be coming. Two child kings, both seemingly mentally unwell when they reach their majority, leading to internal political conflict in such a short time is an easy parallel to draw. Sadly for the Black Prince and his father, their plans would end with a groan. The Black Prince died of an unknown illness possibly dysentery, leaving behind a nine-year-old son, Richard of Bordeaux, a grieving widow and a broken-hearted father. His death was mourned in his own country, in his duchy, and even in France. A little more than a year later, on the 16th of July, 1377, less than a month after the death of his father, Edward III, his son would be crowned Richard II. This would be the first time in Anglo-Norman history that a king would succeed his grandfather. The last opportunity for something similar was in 1199, when Richard I died. According to modern succession rules, his nephew, 
Arthur of Brittany, the surviving son of his next oldest brother, Geoffrey II, Duke of Brittany, should have been crowned. But his youngest brother, John, was crowned in England. With the help of his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, King John was able to defeat Arthur in a siege and take Arthur and his sister prisoner. This allowed John to take control, for the moment, of his territorial possessions. Arthur was later brutally murdered on his uncle's orders, and his sister was imprisoned for the rest of her life. Richard was much luckier than Arthur. His uncles were actually very attached to the memory of their older brother, and they did nothing to stand in the way of his ascension. It's too bad Richard never grew to become the man his father was. But his uncles weren't nearly as at fault for his eventual downfall as John was for the death of his nephew. But this isn't Richard's story, though he will be featured in every one of his uncle's episodes. So let's get stuck into his father. The Black Prince was born on the 15th of June, 1330, to Edward III and Philippa of Hainaut. His birth coming not long after his great-uncle, Edmund of Kent's execution, provided the impetus for Edward III to overthrow Isabella of France, his mother, and Roger Mortimer, his regent and take control of his kingdom. Edward III was only 17 at the time, and probably worried for the safety of his small, for the moment, family. Roger Mortimer was executed on the 29th of November, 1330, and Isabella of France was placed under house arrest. The group of friends that helped Edward with this coup would be his closest friends for the rest of their lives, and will feature heavily in his special episodes. Because father and son, and grandfather, and great-grandfather, share the same given name. I will use regnal numbers to identify the Edwards, who were kings, and Edward the Black Prince will usually be the Black Prince. This sobriquet is an interesting historical note, and I feel it's important to cover. During his lifetime, he was known as Edward of Woodstock, the palace that he had been born in. This is a theme with the children of Edward III, naming them after the place they were born. After his death, he was often known as Edward IV until the crowning of Edward IV in 1461. The Black Prince Subriquet wasn't used until the 16th century, first by John Leland, but probably made permanent for us by Shakespeare's use of it in Henry V. There are three theories as to where it came from, referenced regularly in pop history posts. Only two have ever been considered seriously by academics, and I fully agree with one of these. The pop history suggestion for his nickname is that he was black, as in a highly melanated, dark-skinned man. The evidence for this is minimal and comes from a description of his mother, or possibly his aunt, provided by Walter de Stapleton, the Bishop of Exeter, as follows, quote, The lady whom we saw has not uncomely hair, betwixt blue, black, and brown. Her face narrows between the eyes, and its lower part is more narrow than her forehead. Her eyes are blackish-brown and deep. Her nose is fairly smooth and even, save that it is somewhat broad at the tip and flattened, and yet it is no snub nose. Her lips are full, especially the lower lip. Her lower teeth project a little beyond the upper, yet this is but little seen. All her body is well set and unmaimed, and naught is amiss so far as a man may see. Moreover, she is brown of skin all over, 
much like her father, end quote. Now, I don't know if Philippa of Hainaut or her father were black. Other than this note, there aren't other sources for this. I also feel that if this were the reason for his nickname, the Black Prince would have been known as such during his lifetime, not 200 years later. In addition, many contemporary or near-contemporary works of art show a man with light brown to dark blonde hair and fair skin. I'll put his Order of the Garter likeness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This was painted in the 1430s on the commission of William Bruges, who was alive during the end of Edward III's reign and all of Richard II's reign. I'm not saying there wasn't propaganda in the 14th century, but this seems to be the least likely reason. The second suggestion for this title is the Black Prince's supposed orchestration of a brutal massacre of more than 3,000 citizens of Limoges in September of 1370. The theory of this slaughter comes almost exclusively from Jean Frossat, a French-speaking court historian from Hainaut. It's important to note that at the time of the siege of Limoges, Froissart was no longer in the employ of the English, nor at the event. Froissart states that, quote, It was a most melancholy business, for all ranks, ages, and sexes cast themselves on their knees before the prince, begging for mercy. But he was so inflamed with passion and revenge that he listened to none, but all were put to the sword. Upwards of 3,000 men, women, and children were put to death that day. End quote. This statement has been used to imply that the Black Prince was a bloodthirsty, horrible beast of a man who killed many unarmed civilians, which may have been true in other cases. However, modern historian Dr. Guilhem Pepin found a letter in the Black Prince's own hand in a Spanish archive. The Black Prince had written the letter to his sometimes friend and ally, Gaston Phoebus, Count of Foix. In the letter, the Black Prince refers to taking of 200 knights and other soldiers and the bishop of the city. Based on other sources, it is likely that only 300 people were killed in the siege, 100 soldiers and 200 civilians. I'm not suggesting 300 deaths isn't a tragedy, but it's nowhere near the massacre of 3,000. Michael Jones, outlines in his book, The Black Prince, that it's likely Foissat didn't understand the layout of the city, which has two parts. The lower portion, the cité, was controlled by the bishop, who prior to this was one of the Black Prince's closest friends and his son Richard's godfather. The upper portion, or chateau, was the commercial area where most of the citizens lived. Only the lower portion of the city was attacked and sacked. Most of the citizens were killed by the French garrison due to the citizens' loyalty to the Black Prince. It's unlikely the French royal family and the population of France would have mourned for his passing if he had slaughtered more than 3,000 civilians. The final and most likely reason for his nickname is his armor and shield. It was black. The Black Prince chose his peace shield, the one he used for tournaments after the Battle of Cressy. He borrowed the ostrich feather emblem used by his fallen opponent, John of Bohemia, sometimes called Jean of Luxembourg, who died surrounded by his loyal knights in a final charge and placed three of these on a black background. When shield and armor are put together, it's easy to imagine trying to come up with a nickname that wasn't already taken, since Edward IV and Edward Prince of Wales were 
already taken. With his nickname out of the way, let's begin discussing his actual life. Not surprisingly, there's little known of his early life. Young boys were often raised with their mothers and sisters until their formal education began at six. The Black Prince's oldest younger sisters, Isabella and Joan, were close in age to him and would likely have spent a great deal of time with him in their childhood. The Black Prince would likely have begun his formal education before any of his brothers were even born. Edward III wanted his oldest son to be raised to be a great military leader. He himself resented the Treaty of Edinburgh Northampton that he had been forced to sign in 1328 at the age of 15. I'll save the details of this treaty for his episode. Edward III's plans for his son included beginning his leadership training early. Before his third birthday, the Black Prince was invested with the Earldom of Chester, and in 1337, he was created Duke of Cornwall, the first dukedom in England. This dukedom is still invested in the Prince of Wales. 1337 was also the year that tension with France came to a head. As part of papal attempts to negotiate a truce between France and England, the Black Prince, accompanied by various nobles, escorted two cardinals acting as papal negotiators into the city to meet his father. And finally, in 1338, when the Black Prince was eight, while Edward III was in Flanders, campaigning, or trying to, against the French, he appointed his son Guardian of England, though a council would do the actual governing. Edward III wanted his son to participate early in the process of government. The Black Prince would serve in this role from July of 1338 to February of 1340. While Edward was on the continent, he attempted to arrange a marriage between his son and a daughter of his ally, John, Duke of Brabant. This came to nothing. It would actually be a very long time before the Black Prince married. Much that is known about the Black Prince's childhood is known in relation to his father, whom he would have grown up hearing stories about. Edward's victories in Scotland and France, including an amazing sea battle in 1340, would have lit his imagination. In addition to the Black Prince's 1338 to 1340 service as guardian, he would act as such twice more, again for a short period in 1340, and from October 1342 to March 1343. Edward III's spending on these campaigns caused his son a great deal of stress, since the young boy was charged with communicating with his father regarding taxes and levies. Edward III actually bankrupt two Italian lending houses in the early years of his continental campaigns. In 1345, at the age of 15, the Black Prince would accompany his father to Slice to assist or at least witness treaty negotiations with Edward III's allies in Flanders. Through late 1345 and early 1346, Edward III would plan his next major campaign in France, and this time the Black Prince would be joining him in battle. While Edward III will be getting his own special episode, I do need to discuss him a little, especially his understanding of the psychology and stagecraft of war. At 15, in August of 1327, he had been with his mother and Roger Mortimer near the Scottish border as part of the Weardale campaign. Scottish forces had been avoiding battle with England throughout July and August, and were apparently low on supplies, when overnight, on the 2nd and 3rd of August, the Black Douglas, yes, the same one who had tried to kidnap Isabella of France in 1319 at York, 
attacked the English camp. Edward's tent was cut down with him inside, terrifying the fleeing young king. This was the campaign that led to the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton. It did teach him a few valuable lessons. First, starving people will do what they must to survive. Plan accordingly. Second, choosing the location of battle and when to fight is the best way to assure a win. The Scots had avoided battle, forcing the English to follow them around the countryside to try to provoke an attack. Third, knowledge of the geographical area where the battle will occur is priceless. The Scots retreated through a swampy area that the English thought they would be unable to flee across. Edward III also learned that building a rapport and camaraderie with his troops was an important part of being a great military leader. He would regularly drink and gamble with his troops as a way to spend time with them. The quote, we drink from the same cup, is often applied to him. All these things would be taught to his son through military service and tournaments. Yes, we get to talk about tournaments. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Tournaments had been popular in Europe since the 12th century. They were very different than what anyone who has watched the Tudors would imagine. While there was jousting, the main event was the melee, or Buhurt. As the name would suggest, it was basically a big fight between two opposing teams with the goal of capturing the knights on the opposing side and ransoming them back. Throughout Edward III's father's reign, tournaments had lost popularity. Edward II was a fan of digging ditches, swimming, and chopping wood. All useful skills. Without royal support, the tournament circuit in England dried up. Edward III was set on bringing back chivalry 
and tournaments. Jousting and pageantry were a huge part of his court and tournament circuit. In 1344, he had a round table in King Arthur style built for a tournament. He originally planned to form the Order of the Round Table, replicating the Spanish Order of the Sash, founded by King Alfonso XI of Castile in 1332. I'll get into the order he founded soon. Before that, we have one little battle and a huge march, or chevouchee, to cover. Yes, a rare campaign and battle I will actually cover a little. The Black Prince and his father left England in July 1346. In my reading for this series, much is made about the Black Prince's actions and the Battle of Cressy. This was the battle where Edward III made his son, quote, win his spurs, end quote. The full story is a bit more horrific to modern ears than the heroic tellings of those who weren't at the battle. In 1346, Edward had his choice of locations to either attack or reinforce. His cousin, Henry of Lancaster, son of the Henry of Lancaster mentioned in Isabella's episode, was leading forces in Gascony. Edward III's forces in Flanders were under the leadership of Sir Hugh Hastings, a nephew of Hugh Despenser the Younger. Edward III had 14,000 troops at his disposal. But instead of reinforcing his forces, he decided he would attack a completely new location, or at least historically in his case, a very old location, Normandy. While English kings hadn't been dukes of Normandy for almost 100 years, since 1259. Edward III's mother, Isabella of France, had received the county of Pontou from her father as part of her dowry. Pontou is just north of Normandy, and Edward III spent time hunting and visiting the area in 1329 and 1331. This was an era well before Google Maps, MapQuest, or even an almanac. Topographic maps were pretty much non-existent, and those that did exist were often inaccurate. Because he had spent time in the area and gotten to know the locals, he would have had access to local help and his own knowledge of the area. This would come in handy in this campaign, and it would teach his son the value of planning and improvising on campaigns. I'll remind you all once more. <laughs> we'll be covering more on this campaign from Edward III's point of view in his special episode. If you look at a map of the Cressy campaign, it looks a bit like Edward III took his army on a really long, winding march, when he could have easily sailed to his target location quickly. I'm currently putting a great deal of reading and research into this, because I think understanding Edward III's choices is important. Try to remember that the focus of this episode is the Black Prince, and what he's seeing and learning. I will be including a map of this campaign on Facebook. Please take a look if you're not familiar with this area of the world. It will help explain why this march took so long. Edward III assigned the Black Prince to the vanguard. The young man would be assisted by two of his father's most trusted lieutenants. While on campaign, the Black Prince would learn all his father had to teach. And what he had to teach was the stuff of legend. Upon landing on the 12th of July, 1346, at Saint-Vas-la-Hoge, Edward III fell face first into the sand. Instead of being embarrassed, he supposedly stood up and claimed it was a sign that the land of France was welcoming him. It was only one of many examples of his showmanship. Not long after arriving, Edward III knighted his son. Having a king knight a future king is an important rite of passage, as I mentioned in relation to Henry II in Matilda's episodes. On this campaign, Edward III and his army would be taking a 
Roman approach to conquering territories. Those who surrendered without a fight would be treated well and protected. Those who fought would be treated without mercy. Edward III was fighting in France on the claim that it was his country. These people were his subjects. From the 12th to the 26th of July, the army marched, not in a straight line, to Caen. The Black Prince would lead the siege of the city. The city and its castle fell easily. Edward III had instilled chivalry into his leaders. This would see the French leadership of Caen protected. While we often think of men opening doors for women or courtly love when chivalry is discussed, it was actually more relevant on the battlefield. Knights, nobles, kings, and those who surrender should be taken prisoner. Ransom was demanded for those who could pay, and think of it from a logical way. You don't kill your hostage, but you get money that you can use to pay more soldiers to fight against your enemy. He's also out of action while you're holding him hostage. There are times these rules are dropped on the battlefield, when certain battle flags are shown. The Oriflame for the French and the Dragon Banner for the English would be the best examples. No quarter would be given when these are flown. It's to stop people being distracted by taking hostages. The Count of Eu, Raoul de Brin, the French commander of the castle, was almost killed in the final assault. He was probably very grateful for Edward III's teachings. One of the Black Prince's lieutenants was waved down by Raoul who put him under protection as a hostage. Hostages were valuable war prizes and often taken towards the end of battles. After taking Caen, Edward III and his army started marching towards Rouen. Philip VI finally responded by rushing to Rouen, thinking he was predicting Edward III's move. Instead, as possibly planned, Edward III led his troops south along the Seine towards Paris or at least that's what he wanted Philip to think. It's great only having one Philip in this episode. He sent the Black Prince to raid the rural areas and outer suburbs of Paris, while his engineers quickly and quietly repaired a bridge at Poissy. The French troops shadowing the English forces from the opposite side of the Seine were surprised with the appearance of English troops. The Black Prince was about to see one of his father's greatest pieces of military theater. His father was moving north towards the Somme, with French troops coming up from Rouen behind him. The smaller French forces on the north bank of the Somme had, again, burnt all the bridges to prevent the English from crossing. Edward was about to teach his son the importance of both showmanship and planning in adversarial situations. Edward knew of a place to ford the Somme, called Blanche Tech by the locals. Edward may have known about this from his earlier visits or he may have heard about it earlier in his march. Blanche Tank was a sandstone crossing that was passable at low tide. On the morning of the 24th of August, he led his troops to the water's edge. French troops were wading across the river from them, but didn't seem to know that there was a crossing at this point. Edward had likely shared this information with only his son and his leading lieutenants. He sent his most trusted knights across first. His timing was perfect. The tide was out, but about to turn and start coming in. A group of mounted archers followed the knights in and started firing at the French troops, who scattered. The Black Prince and the rest of the army followed. Chroniclers and soldiers were impressed by his theater. Edward's timing was quite perfect. The French troops that were following them were unable to cross due to the rising tide. 
the French hadn't thought that Edward and his troops could cross the Somme, and hadn't prepared the countryside around it for his presence, allowing him and his troops to loot for food and supplies. While the Black Prince hadn't been leading, he was learning. At only 16, and on his first military campaign, he was watching a great military mine. Edward III had even brought early guns, mainly for their novelty factor and the loud noises they make, but really, guns in 1346. While the route the army was taking may not have been ideal, the art of chevauchet, if I can call it an art, is something the Black Prince would learn well, and used to brutal effect in his later campaigns. Chevauchet literally means horse charge. I've heard it described as the medieval version of bellum se ipsum alet, the army will feed itself, as coined by Cato the Elder. While it's most associated with the Thirty Years' War, I think it properly describes the behavior of the Black Prince and his father. Edward III picked the side of battle well. Instead of letting his enemy choose the place of battle, he selected an elevated location just outside of Cressy. He chose the higher ground, of course, but he also secured his rear, which was covered by forest. The hill would slow any horses or men attacking his position. There are two different sources on his placement of archers, either at his flanks or scattered throughout his forces. Either way, they would be brutally effective. The angle of fields on the hill would force French attacks towards his right line, and that is where he put his son. Edward III was going to see to it that his son learned what war was, or died trying. Without going through the whole battle, because I don't do battles, it's important to know that Philip VI's leadership was lacking, mainly because he wasn't in the field. He was trying to get there, but the French line stretched out, and Philip allowed his troops to attack without his entire army present. The lack of his leadership would be costly to his side. The Black Prince fought bravely, locking arms with the soldiers next to him to hold back French waves of attackers. His father was asked by others to remove him, but he let his son continue fighting. He even refused to reinforce his son's lines. At one point, the Black Prince was knocked unconscious and almost taken prisoner. Only fighting amongst the French as to whose hostage he was and quick action on the part of his men saw him out of harm's way. He did regain consciousness and return to the battle, but this wasn't the glory that it's often presented in blog posts and cinema. Thankfully, there are sources, including those compiled by Dr. Michael Livingston, who searched through the primary sources and tells a story that isn't all glory. Edward the Black Prince seems to have, have a great PR team, even 650 plus years after his death. Many people focus on the outcome. English victory, French loss, and Edward III's statement that his son needed to earn his spurs. Really, this was almost the worst outcome. An unconscious prince is a great hostage. As we'll see next week, royalty is worth a lot. The battle could still have been won, even if Edward III had moved his son to a safer position. Putting 16-year-olds in the middle of a battle is usually not recommended. But the Black Prince did show courage. Edward III's risking of his son to teach him a lesson was bordering on foolhardy. Yes, the Black Prince earned his spurs, but only luck and a few quick-thinking soldiers kept him alive. After their win at Cressy, 
Edward III's army was resupplied at Le Crotois, a port at the mouth of the Somme, which indicates that Edward III had planned at least part of his route to Cressy in advance. The Black Prince continued to loot the countryside. Remember, those that stood against the king were free game. They continued traveling north, reaching Calais on the 4th of September. At the same time, Philip VI, well, sort of threw in the towel. He disbanded his army to save money. He didn't seem to realize that Edward III was not done with his country. The siege of Calais would last for almost a year. Philip did reform his army, but would begin struggling with troop numbers for reasons we'll learn about in the next episode. Edward III and his troops were assisted by French turncoats, and the city would fall on the 3rd of August, 1347. Calais would remain an English-held territory until the reign of Mary I in 1558. The Black Prince was present throughout the siege. He spent time looting for supplies in the local area. After the fall of Calais, the Truce of Calais was signed between Edward III and Philip VI. It originally ran for nine months from September 1347 to July 1348. It would be extended multiple times until it was allowed to expire in 1355. After returning to England from Calais in 1347, Edward III finally founded his chivalric order, the Order of the Garter, in 1348. Now, quickly, there are a few dates listed for the founding, but I think the 1348 date to be most likely. The Complete Peerage states it was founded in April of 1344, two years before the Cressy campaign even began. 1334 was also the year that Edward built his round table with 300 knights. I think founding two chivalric orders in one year would be a bit ambitious, even for an ambitious king like Edward III. The Black Prince was the first knight initiated to the order after the king, of course. After more than a year overseas, learning how to lead men, almost being captured, and all the deprivation that comes from being on campaign, the pomp and honor around the order would have been a great reward. I'll be taking a break here. I want to divide the Black Prince's story into two parts, the learning phase that you've heard, <laughs> and the leading phase that comes next. Next week, I'll be covering his use of all that his father taught him to rule Gascony and lead troops in France to one of the greatest victories in English history. Because he's the first past to predecease the king for whom he was the heir apparent, the end of his story will be slightly more heartbreaking. So do be ready for that. I would like to welcome my second patron. Thank you, Krista. I really hope over the coming months we can build a community on both Patreon and social media. I love hearing listeners' thoughts and feedback. Please don't be shy. I can't be on at all times, but I will respond as often as I can. Please join me next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod.